Hey there, Rand Northam, Communications Manager for the Town of Chapel Hill, back with you for Episode 2 of Town Talk, the podcast. Shanika Weeks is our DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer. She has had a brave history, and it was so good to get to know all the great things that she has done for our community already, for our state, and elsewhere outside the state as well. She's also introduced a brave space for town employees, and we get into that a little bit as well. DEI comes from the Reimagining Community Safety Task Force as far as the town of Chapel Hill is concerned, and I look forward to sharing this story with you about Shanika Weeks in Town Talk, the podcast. Where did little Shanika grow up? Little Shanika was born in Inwood, New York. Um, really close to Queens, not Queens. You can kind of step over and be in Queens. People are more familiar with that uh, than Nassau County. Um, had some family there, not a lot. Uh, my Both of my parents uh, were from North Carolina. They met in New York. And uh, my sister and I kind of came out of that union. So I'm the baby of the family. Um, the baby boss of the family, <laughs> if you will, uh, but stayed in New York until about the age of eight. Um, New York was changing. So this is like 86, 87. And so, you know, if we kind of keep the timeline of what's happening in America, um, crack cocaine was major in the 80s and mm-hmm. in New York. And mm-hmm. so um, my mom and my family kind of felt like it was a good place to kind of move us out of that, um, out of that space. We grew up pretty close to the beach. Um, mm. One of the, as a child, kind of going back to that time frame and realizing kind of sort of what had happened, we were really close. We were in Long Island, so really close to the beach so we could walk to the beach. Mm. And so I recall as a kid walking to the beach and playing in the sand, um, you know, doing kid stuff at the beach. And then at some point in time, we couldn't walk to the beach anymore mm-hmm. because um, the drug use and crack ep- epidemic at that point in time, um, people were, were putting their drugs in glass vials. And wow. so there were lots of broken glass vials right. in the sand. Right. And so we just could no longer go to the beach. And so mm-hmm. that kind of put a bookend of our time in New York. Um, but it was it was great, different cultures. And I remember... Um, just experiencing all of the various religions and the folks, you right. know, those pieces were very much a part of our curriculum, um, studying, you know, Chinese New Year or, you know, Hanukkah and, and just mm. really having opportunities to do that um, in class and celebrate everyone's culture. So yeah. that's great. I, 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 I can sense a, a theme here as we, we get into what you do uh, here. But you mentioned you have a sister. I do. Um, did you have any other family kind of around in, in the area too? So in the New York area, and we mm-hmm. moved to North Carolina at the age of eight, which I was surrounded by all of my mother's family. And so um, in New York, we had grandparents that weren't actually grandparents. We mm-hmm. call that fictive kin. We had some fictive kin grandparents <sighs> who kind of stood in the gap for our, parent, our grandparents in New mm-hmm. York. Um, my uncle was also there. He was kind of supportive, um, kind of getting us back and forth to school when parents were working and things such as that. Um, but my father had uh, three children before he met and married my mom. And so they're certainly my siblings, mm-hmm. um, but much older. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so love those folks as well. Great. Um, big family. Big family. Yeah. But, uh, but again, 
Bounce baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm the baby myself. Yes. Uh, my um, brothers, I've got two half brothers. They would probably call me the boss baby too. Yes. Um, as certainly at times, <laughs> uh, for sure. Um, so um, then you, um, you make it through uh, primary education and you land at North Carolina A&T. I did. And I know you are proud, Aggie. Aggie what took pride? you to A&T? What, what got I, you there? So fourth grade, um, Spike Lee right came out with the movie i believe it was do the right thing um no excuse me school days i'm gonna get my card snatched but it was school days <laughs> and um and so it kind of depicted the hbcu experience mm. and so as a fourth grader trying to figure out like well you know what is this movie that i probably shouldn't have been watching but i watched <laughs> um and right at that time i think someone around had an a and t t-shirt maybe from Aggie Fest, mm. um, kind of a celebration that happened back in the, the 80s, 90s. And um, I kind of identified that as the HBCU mm. of choice at that point in time. And I just never deviated or strayed from that. Yeah. And so um, funny story, funny that I should end up in Chapel Hill. <laughs> um, high school was involved in lots of different um, social clubs and activities, one of which was Crime Stoppers. Mm. And that gave me a relationship with our school resource officer, which then kind of turned into, there's a scholarship application, North Carolina Police Corps, which was a federal opportunity through the Department of Justice to get more college educated folks on, um, in rural areas um, as law enforcement officers having that college experience. Mm. And so um, had kind of watched my, my family getting my sister through college and uh, the financial woes that 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 would take and um, I filled out for the scholarship application. And then there was, you know, the opportunity. So I had the chance to go to any state supported school mm. in North Carolina um, with college being paid for up to, you know, the amount of the scholarship, which it was large enough to cover the majority. Yeah. And um, my mother wanted me to go to Carolina, <laughs> right? She wanted me to go to Carolina because Carolina's where the smart folks went, right? You know, so my mother yes. did not attend college, but, you know, very much understood that Carolina was the place for, for academics in, in mm -hmm. her thought process. I, on the other hand, since fourth grade, knew that A&T was a school for me. My right. sister also was an Aggie yeah. um, at that point. And so um, I like Mustangs. I drive a Mustang now. Mom said, well, you know, if you go to Carolina, I'll get you a Mustang. And so I, I you know, gladly replied to her, no, thank you. I'll walk at A&T. <laughs> and so, you know, I could not be uh, bought or bothered about my college choice. A&T <laughs> for me represented an opportunity um, to experience something that I had not experienced. Mm. It um, full immersion in, in black culture. Mm. Um, in my high school, we had wonderful teachers of all races, and I was um, semi-good student, you know. I was, I was okay. Voted best all-around girl, senior class, you know. So I had, I had a level of autonomy and belonging in my school that mm -hmm. was major. Um, but it was an opportunity to see something different, yeah. um, to have a different experience. And so I jumped at that and loved it and would do it again. I enjoyed being 43, but if I could go back to like <sighs> 1920, I'd do it again, right? right? I would like to take over for the 99, 2000s, right? Like that was, that was my, my era. I yes. really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Um, I was an education major and uh, psychology was like that secondary. And somewhere in that process, 
kind of wised up a bit. I said, if you're going to have to go be a law enforcement officer for, you know, at least four years to fulfill the scholarship um, mm. obligation and the teaching certification lasts for five years, you've got one year to play with. Uh -huh. And so my senior year in, you know, <laughs> youthful um, ambition decided I would change my major from <laughs> education to psychology, mm. resulting in 20 hours one semester and 21 hours the last semester of wow. school. Which was smart, <laughs> very smart. But I managed to do it and graduate um, within the four years. Yeah. Summa, so we, we made it, we passed Absolutely. through. Um, I wonder where I had that level, of, where is that level of push now <laughs> <right>? <laughs> to get that done? Yes, yeah. um, that takes yeah. a little bit more nowadays. <laughs> it does, it does. College was, was an amazing time. Um, friends and culture and just meeting different people and, and realizing mm. the complexity of... Um, the black experience, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was great. I, I know that pressure. I didn't get it from my parents. Um, I grew up in rural Virginia, and I, my parents were not at all Virginians, but everybody in my area said, you have to go to UVA yeah. if you want to amount to anything. Yes. If you can't get into UVA, we'll accept Virginia Tech. Right. But anything outside of that, you're trash. Right. So right. 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 I went to Western North Carolina <laughs> and went to Appalachian State University. I took myself completely out of that equation. Absolutely. Um, but Absolutely. I, I know what you mean yeah. uh, in that. There, there's, there's some some real drive from some people for certain universities, for sure. So um, you mentioned then law enforcement. What was your, um, what was that first step for you out of school though? What was your, what was your first job out of school? First job out of, so I've, I've been working since I was 14, right? Mm. First job, Ernie's Buffet. Second job was um, an organization that um, did like beauty supply supplies mm. um, in a way in its administrative role, um, worked at Andy's. When I was in college, my sister worked uh, for a group home working with individuals with developmental disabilities. Mm. And so the entire time I was in college, I worked there as well. Um, so the scholarship application. So I graduated in 01 mm -hmm. and I had a boyfriend. I wasn't ready to leave him. I loved him, right? <laughs> I loved him so good. I wasn't yes. ready to go. And so I asked for a leave of absence mm. so that I could... Um, materialize or deconstruct this relationship but like it was going to be hard <laughs> right. to leave them and so that 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 lended me in the opportunity to do substance abuse prevention mm. work for alcohol and drug services in Greensboro and so um, really had an opportunity to go in and do education work with um, mothers in recovery mm. you know 23 with no kids 21 22 with no kids uh working with the parents, but it was it was a humbling experience yeah. and just a real um, outlook into humanity, the struggles that people experience mm -hmm. and like the structures and systems of support um, for folks. And so that was that was really good prep work going into law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So the year's up. I've got to go back and do this <laughs> law enforcement piece. And so, um, you know, Police Academy was interesting. It was six months residential. Yeah. We, we didn't have keys. Couldn't couldn't go drive our cars. I mean, it was it was wow. paramilitary. Uh, right. Left, right, left. Everywhere we went. Yeah. PT in the morning. So yeah. it was it was an interesting space. Um, but my first um, assignment after law enforcement or after BLET was I believe I was an SRO. Mm. So a school resource officer, yeah. um, and I was an SRO in a couple of different spaces, um, a couple of middle schools, but spent the bulk of my time as a school resource officer at Coates Irwin Middle School, which would have been the middle school that I attended had that school 
been opened um, whenever I was in, in my uh, formative years. And so it was great. Some of my high school teachers were now principals in different spaces. Yeah. Um, so that was a wonderful opportunity, working and serving uh, the community in which I lived. Mm -hmm. And um, in many of those spaces, the children of folks that I knew. Right. And so um, I had a great opportunity to to do it differently mm -hmm. um, because I had those relationships. Mm -hmm. I recall uh, times where we would, you know, at the end of the month, you do your paperwork like <laughs> everyone does. And my paperwork didn't look like everyone else's. Mm -hmm. um, and I began to kind of feel that pressure. I was the only black female deputy in Harnett County. Wow. Black. Yeah. Um, and so that in and of itself creates a level of, am I performing up to the standard, right? And whatever that standard is, knowing that uh, from a demographic standpoint, I didn't fit that standard. Mm -hmm. As a woman in law enforcement and then as a black woman in law enforcement, mm -hmm. as a black woman with a degree in law enforcement, right? So just different things yeah. um, that were kind of at play in that space. Um, but I recall going to my captain and saying, I don't know what to do because mm -hmm. I don't have as many tick marks, but I know these babies, mm -hmm. right? I walk into classrooms and I, you know, do I need to go see your mom? Mm -hmm. On the way home, I can make stops. And so <sighs> kids talk to me because they know me. Yeah. Um, and so they come and they tell me things. And mm -hmm. so I'm kind of able to kind of be in spaces and thwart crime, if you will. And so my stats were lower. Mm -hmm. um, and I just recall saying, I don't know if the expectation are these numbers, and not saying that it was, mm -hmm. people um, perform their jobs with, I assume, what was given to them. Yeah. And based on the relationships that they had, I was like, but I, I need to be able to sleep at night. Like, I, this is the way I do this work here. Mm -hmm. um, and that was met with acceptance. Mm. Um, and that was one of those spaces where, you know, you go through your ethics classes, and it's like, what do you do when you're in this ethical dilemma? What uh -huh. are you going to do? And so here I am, 20, again, 20. 223 walking into my captain's office <laughs> like I can't do it this way yeah. I, like there's a there's a better way yeah. um, I haven't always been as bold um, <laughs> but on that hard. but on that I, you know yeah. I, I kind of had to stand in my space mm -hmm. and be rooted in community and that worked out well for me and if you already said this I apologize the um, scholarship was obviously a big part of it too. What, oh, yeah. what was a big part of it? Was that the driving force or was there something else that drew you to law enforcement? You, no, I mean, from a family perspective, um, our family was very open in terms of conversation. Mm -hmm. you, you know, I knew what was going on financially. Mm -hmm. I knew what the expectations were of me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my mom always stressed education. College was never you know, not an option. Yeah. And um, my sister and I were both, you know, smart kids. And so it's like, you need to get some scholarship money because you need to get some scholarship money. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, that was the only full ride. I had some other scholarships, wow. but that not that would have taken the full, the full toll. Mm -hmm. I had a relationship again with the SRO at that point in time. Um, and it was like, okay, I'll, this is sacrificial, mm. right? To yeah. do this. It was, it was a, a decision that was for my family. Um, mm -hmm. And there were many times, um, <laughs> Johnny Britt, mm -hmm. Captain Britt, um, was my roommate in Bilet, right? So it's, it's funny that years wow. years later, we're yes, together absolutely. in Chapel Hill, but I would often tell her, you're gonna wake up in the morning, I'm gonna be gone. Like, I don't know about <laughs> this, right? This I don't know if this is for me. So still to this day, graduating from basic law enforcement training, um, 
I think is my biggest accomplishment mm -hmm. and not necessarily um, from a prestige standpoint, but because that was the true sacrifice and something that I wasn't sure I could do, right? Yeah. So thinking about, you know, fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, like it required a growth mindset to get through that process. Absolutely. Um, so we persevered and, and you know. That's amazing. I, I love that story. That is just really neat. And to be able to just say, we're going to do this. I mean, you didn't really have a choice at that point. Right. Uh, but Or have, have debt, college, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, thinking about schools and being a school resource officer or teaching the DARE program, I was like, yeah. there, are, there are different ways to be in this space. Um, one of the things I love most, I mean, had we had a crisis unit, mm. it would have been a no-brainer. Oh, absolutely. Right? right. Um, so I think that that even within law enforcement, there are different areas and avenues that mm. folks can go into. And, and as we continue to expand that, mm. the career will become more attractive to folks who um, maybe don't have the initial love or drive for mm -hmm. law enforcement, but they, mm -hmm. they want to serve folks in, in various ways. And we are, you know, community helpers. And That's so right. that, that can happen a multitude of ways. That's amazing. Well, so um, how did that or, or did that at all connect you then to what you did in, as a guardian ad litem? Um, what's that step then? How do you get to that, that point? Interesting. Um, <clears throat> I wish I would have been one of these people with like a career goal. <laughs> That was not if me. If you meet any of those people, you let me know because I've backed friend. into some things along the way. So I have a friend. She knew she was going to be an attorney. Um, and so she knew, always knew she wanted to be. A, that's not my case. Um, I knew I wanted to help people. I wanted to serve people. I knew I enjoyed teaching. I knew I enjoyed facilitating. And so I've kind of found ways to do that within each yeah. job. Right after law enforcement, um, in that process, SRO, uh, also a D.A.R.E. officer, and D.A.R.E. kind of got sunset, mm -hmm. and a program called GREAT, Gang Resistance Education and Training, became the new thing. And mm -hmm. so here I am, fresh out of grad school at this point in time. I took the opportunity to do that. Also went to Central, mm -hmm. North Carolina Central University. I'm an Aggie and an Eagle, but the Aggie <laughs> is where the love um, <laughs> certainly is deeply rooted. Yes. And so there were federal grants at that time for this new program, this new GREAT program, if you will. And so asked my, my captain, hey, there's a information session in DC tomorrow, can I go? Mm. <laughs> He's like, sure. So I go find out yeah. about the grant, yeah. write the grant, which that then puts me in this gang space, mm -hmm. right? Of mm -hmm. understanding more about gangs. And they were kind of prevalent at that point in time. This would have been 2006 to seven, eight. And so um, in the process of doing that work and, and working through the great program, um, someone at like a men's breakfast, because you know, when you do this type of work, you go to community events. Right. So I go to a community event. Um, my supervisor was a men's breakfast and I was like, supervisor, you should go, it's a men's breakfast, I'm not a man. And he was like, nope, you, you get your way most of the time, but today, not today, <laughs> you're gonna go to this men's breakfast. Yeah. So I, I couldn't get out of it. Mm -hmm. So I go to this men's breakfast and the person that spoke after me, you know, just emphatically said, you all should get all the information you're going to get from this young lady. She'll be at the state or regional level with gang prevention in less than two or three years. Mm. So I'm sitting there like, OK, I'm in a church. All right. <sighs> Interesting. Saw a position for Wake County mm -hmm. and it was a gang um, director of gang prevention mm. in Wake County. I said, oh, well, maybe I should put my name in the hat. Did walk directly into the position. It was one of those fate situations. Mm. Um, 
and learned about prevention, reentry work and suppression work, which is a law enforcement arm and intervention work. And mm -hmm. so working with nonprofits, um, you know, really seeing young pe people who had maybe gotten involved um, that really wanted to disengage from gangs. But that's yeah. that's not just the I'm done. Right. There, there's a process right. and strategy um, related to safety that has to be followed. I'm mm. um, looking at the systems involved with that from the again, the criminal justice system to the school system, the school mm. to prison pipeline. And then that piece of getting folks out of incarceration mm -hmm. back to the community with that reentry piece. And so it really gave me this full scale, um, full cycle look into really the, the public health side of violence, mm. gun violence, gang violence. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I began to see those social determinants of health as being a thing um, that we really need to look at. And so I got to guarding that light um, by way of looking at that full cycle mm -hmm. and realizing that many of the young people who found themselves as a part of uh, gangs really experienced levels of trauma, mm -hmm. whether that is abuse or neglect, um, as a child. Mm. And I was like, oh, so now I've got to, I've just got to go deeper. I've got to get, get close to the root, the root right. cause. Let me start working with these young people. Yeah. Found out about the Guardian Aladdin program and applied um, for that. And it was, I wanted to move. And so ended up closer to Charlotte. Mm -hmm. uh, so worked in Union, Anson, Stanley and Richmond County. Mm -hmm. um, training volunteers to go be advocates for children. Mm. Uh, working with attorneys on a regular basis who then advocate for them based on the advocacy work done of volunteers mm -hmm. and looking at those systems. And so you, you've got mental health and you have substance abuse. Again, these strands, they don't, they don't leave. They are, you know, they're, they're woven into this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and really seeing people struggle in, in, in understanding that it's not that people don't love their children because you're like, how do you love your children? And, you know, yeah. Folks have struggles and some struggles are easy to kind of get out of mm -hmm. um, and some are like really high and really steep, especially when you put into um, this brain chemical piece. Right? right. You know, when you've got endorphins and dopamine being released mm -hmm. at levels greater than any natural activity can right. provide for you. Yeah. Um, and seeing the love that children have for their parents and then, you know, the heartbreaking instance when um, that love that the parent has for that child isn't enough to maintain safety mm -hmm. for that young person and having to make some really tough recommendations to the court about um, permanence for kids. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily what the child wants, not necessarily what the parent wants, mm -hmm. but in that instance, um, is best for that child. Those, yeah. those were hard days um, in the work, but then also you get the, the situations where the parents have worked and they have made the decisions and they have struggled and mm -hmm. um, persevered and you see those families kind of come back together mm -hmm. or you see a child who's been waiting and languishing in the foster care system um, be adopted, right? Yeah. So, you know, highs and lows, but every day was meaningful. Right. Every day was meaningful. There was one particular situation, a young person, um, I just so happened to be doing visits out in Charlotte and saw her school mm -hmm. and said, oh, let me go by and see my, my kid, right? And child, people get upset, kids are baby goats, right? <laughs> but saw my young person. Yes. Um, and that day that young person was being moved, mm -hmm. right? The placement that they were in um, was no longer gonna be feasible. And that day after school, mm -hmm. she would be moved. And I 
literally just so happened to see her school, like riding wow. on another visit. So yeah. I, I go by and I visit and she is asking me 25 questions a minute. Yeah. Do you know who this person is? Are there other children there? Can mm -hmm. I go in the refrigerator? Mm -hmm. You know, is she married? Um, what type of person is it? I mean, she's just, and I have no answers because I don't know that she's being moved. And so I'm just yeah. sitting here in this space, looking at this young person and thinking about the complexity of young people. Mm -hmm. This child was not a child who was more apt or likely to have explosive behaviors, mm -hmm. right? Um, but sat there all day quietly suffering, mm. wondering, questioning. Yeah. Um, where she was gonna lay her head that night. Yeah. And um, that made me want to get into schools because mm. what if she had been the child who had explosive behaviors, mm. right? On that right. day, she would have been suspended. Things would have just gotten, you know, yeah. worse for her. Right. Um, and so I, I really wanted to get into schools and education um, to teach them about trauma and the right. experiences that young people are going through. Mm -hmm. um, so from that, it led me to St. Louis. Yeah. Um, and whew, St. Louis <sighs> post Mike Brown was like bedlam for racial equity work. Mm. Um, the DOJ reports are kind of coming out. We were realizing just this imbalance between the folks in power in Ferguson and mm -hmm. the folks who lived in Ferguson, right? Um, you know, police departments or even um, councils that did not reflect the community. Right. And, um, in instances where municipal budgets were really um, tied to traffic tickets, mm. right? So you have a community that was literally over-policed because um, of various reasons, but you can kind of see through lines mm -hmm. between what was happening. And so I think in that report, you had you know just this overwhelming amount of homes that had warrants based on non-violent traffic violations. Right. Right. And so in that situation, folks were kind of over-policed. And so again, I get there in 2016, this is post Mike Brown, mm -hmm. um, but walking into schools and school districts and school systems and St. Louis is different from North Carolina in that even in the St. Louis area, there were about 70 school districts, right? Wow. So where we have communities here, yeah. um, and that's based on redlining, mm. um, you know, racial covenances within sure. neighborhoods. And so those neighborhoods became school districts. Right. And that's why you had so many of them. Absolutely. And so everyone's kind of doing their own thing a bit. Yeah. Um, that was illuminating work. Mm -hmm. um, you ha again had a situation in some of the school districts where um, the majority of the children were children of color. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of think about all of the risk factors for children in some school districts they would call them the super subgroup. So you think about the risk factors being subgroups mm -hmm. and the entire school, um, the majority of the population kind of had one or more of the subgroup category. So they call those schools like super subgroups, wow. right? So you just have compounding risk factors for young people. Right. Um, and so just walking in and, and then having those conversations around trauma-informed education mm -hmm. was major, right? Yeah. Because you know this movement towards that was, was new, burgeoning in that area. Um, but I couldn't do the culture climate work without yeah. addressing race. Like it was, it right. was literally the elephant in the room. Yeah. And so very quickly my title changed from being a, a let's see, a 
education consultant mm-hmm. to like director of diversity, <laughs> trauma and in, um, and inclusion because we we yeah it had to change. Right. Um, I couldn't do the work mm. without addressing what I need to, to address first, and so that kind of. You see this pathway, how it kind of landed me here. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so one of my first duties as permanent communications manager, I held the interim position um, for a year, but um, I was just looking back today, actually. Um, I think it was two weeks onto the job, Mm -hmm. I published the news release of Mm -hmm. our first diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, (laughs) uh, Shanika Weeks. And so um, I was going to ask what brought you to Chapel Hill. Well, we've covered a lot of that. You've been here before. You're connected to this community. But what um, what interested you in the DEI job for Chapel Hill? I'll ask it that way. Okay. So I had come back to North Carolina. St. Louis was great, great people. It mm-hmm. was cold. It's cold in St. Louis. <laughs> and I miss my family. And I said, I'd rather go travel to visit my friends than mm-hmm. travel to visit my family. Oh, yeah. Right. And so that December... 19 I decided I'm going back home yeah. and I my my thought was go back to the guardian lighting program it was mm-hmm. good work you love this DEI piece mm-hmm. and, and maybe you can kind of do this on the side kind of yeah. consult um, well very quickly into 2020 the world changed right and as right. I watched um, the death of George Floyd on mm-hmm. TV and watched the world become outrage with mm-hmm. the work that I had been kind of immersed in yeah. uh, in St. Louis, it became pretty clear that my plan was not the plan that needed to be executed, mm-hmm. that I needed to kind of get back in this DEI space. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in Surrey and Stokes County, great people, um, beautiful area. Mm-hmm. Um, the racial makeup, both counties less than uh, 10% of any other BIPOC mm-hmm. population. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a, a pretty rural um, white area and those conversations weren't happening mm. um, very often. And so I really felt kind of out of sorts, if you will. Mm-hmm. I wasn't around folks where those conversations would be prominent and it was a time where those conversations kind of needed to be had. Yeah. Um, the, the state was doing some work and there were, there were conversations from the state level, but just the folks that you bump into every right. day, water cooler conversations yeah. were not happening. Um, and so I began looking for DI uh, positions mm-hmm. and saw this one in Chapel Hill and I was like, okay, all right, and, and having some of the experiences in different places, mm-hmm. I felt like Chapel Hill would be an amazing place to kind of do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, Chapel Hill has longstanding um, reputation of being a liberal area, and right. so not that the work wouldn't, it wouldn't be a lift, mm-hmm. right? This is a lift. Oh, yeah. Um, but that there was some grounding mm-hmm. in the way in which um, we treat people, right? A, a grounding in the way in which we aspire to treat people mm-hmm. that um, would not be like starting at ground zero. Right. In all spaces. Sure. Right. You know, Absolutely. there are still some spaces <laughs> where we're kind of, you know, starting from a, a different level, but mm-hmm. not from ground zero in all of that. Right. And that was important for me um, just just for my own sanity mm-hmm. um, off the backs and, yeah. and heels of George Floyd. So backing up for just a second, we, we hear diversity, equity, and inclusion. You can mm-hmm. define those words. That's mm-hmm. easy to do. We can, all, yes. we can all figure that out. What is DEI work for you? What is diversity, equity, and inclusion to you? 
It is about recognizing that we are all different, but we all share the space, mm. and that everyone deserves an equal dial in the sun. Mm. And where there, you know, where folks are being eclipsed, mm. right by systems, we need to look at that system, um, ask good questions, change what we need to change, tweak what we need to tweak, mm -hmm. dismantle what we need to dismantle, <laughs> right? Because those are all, you know, options right. um, to get us to the point where no one is being eclipsed, mm -hmm. right? Their voice is not being eclipsed. Um, their rights, their opportunities, um, their autonomy, mm -hmm. right, is, is not being eclipsed. And so that, that process is, then is equity, right? Mm -hmm. But it takes people who have like this diverse set of experiences, mm -hmm. lived experiences, um, to have conversations about who's not being included, right? Um, to get us to that point of equity. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, you know, diversity and inclusion are like precursors to equity, right? Mm -hmm. you, and even when you have the most diverse space um, and we're thinking about inclusion, we still have to critically love our organization, mm -hmm. right? And, and, it, and it takes a critical love to question it. Mm -hmm. um, kind of borrowing some words of James, Ball, um, James Baldwin here, but we have to really ask those questions. Mm -hmm. um, but we need practice. We need some, some muscle memory. Um, talking about race is hard. People don't like to do it. Mm -hmm. um, people don't want to feel like they are, I'm not racist. <laughs> You right. Know, got it. Right. But you do have some blind spots. Mm -hmm. Whatever you want to call it. Right. right? Absolutely. We, we don't see what we don't see. And so we have to kind of, again, move some things because mm -hmm. things are eclipsed. Right. So, so right. we have to, you know, get some new glasses, yeah. um, change our prescriptions um, to begin seeing things as they are. And history leads us. Mm -hmm. Right. So we right. we have the, the fortune of um, and misfortune misfortune initially, but fortune now mm -hmm. to be able to kind of look at this documented history of oppression. Um, and that, that is, you know, I won't even say breadcrumbs, like a pathway, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> to kind of just walk back right? <laughs> at some of these decisions that yeah. were made, um, then we can see why we, we have the disparate outcomes mm -hmm. and the disparities in the community that we have. And so it's, you know, getting people primed and ready to have those conversations, mm -hmm. um, thinking about, you know, who's not being included. But then the equity piece is how do we walk back down history's, you know, lane that is provided and see how we're still operating like those systems asked us to right. back then. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we've there are lots of implicit things that are kind of happening. We kind of went from this, you know. Black people can't stay here, you know, people of, you know, Japanese people can't stay here, you know, mm -hmm. like all of these things, yeah. you kind of see it from a gear lens. Um, people can't live here, you can't be educated here, you mm -hmm. can't love this person, you can't do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So these things were, you know, codified into our laws. And right. so then we got to this point where it's like, okay, we're explicitly saying it, but now implicitly, we can't say that that's illegal now. Right but it was still happening, mm -hmm. right? And so we kind of, with this GARE framework, kind of going back to this explicit place mm -hmm. of being able to say, hey, no, we need to 
disaggregate this data. We need to call out um, what we're seeing from this demographic categories mm -hmm. and see where the pain points are, right? See where the, the disparities are and then ask questions um, and be willing to change our processes and our policies mm -hmm. and our procedures um, to ensure that everyone has healthy outcomes. Like race should not be a predictor of, you know, success. It shouldn't right. predict the outcomes that, that one has. Mm -hmm. And um, by, by and far across the world, um, it does that, or at least the US, it, it does that. Yeah, well, I know you and I kind of joked, I guess it was a half joke of, uh, you know, the goal of DEI work is to eliminate the need for DEI. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, um, for sure, that is the goal. I, and. That is the theme of my work. Mm -hmm. I've always worked in this prevention kind of space, this yeah. intervention space. You know, if we could get rid of crime, would we need law enforcement? If we could get rid of substance abuse, would we need a substance abuse prevention person? Mm -hmm. If we could get rid of child abuse, would we need guardian ad litems? Right. right. So, like in, right. in all of these spaces that I've worked, um, the world would be better if there was not a position mm -hmm. <laughs> that I held, <laughs> right? <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, but, you know, if not me, then who, right? And there's, right. there's lots of, of, of me's in the world who are doing it. Yeah, well, and I know, so, you know, as I think about the different employees across town, um, there's, there's folks who are inward facing, and mm -hmm. my job deals with the internal work, and mm -hmm. there's people who are outward facing yeah. and out external work. Um, you are one who is very much both. Um, there's, there's a lot of internal work here with the organization, mm -hmm. but I know, and I, I imagine this can be lost sometimes, especially with people who don't know of mm -hmm. our DEI officer. You're here for the community too. I am here for the community. Um, one of the things I'm a old, you know, Baptist Amy Zion girl church wise, and there was an old song um, and it kind of talked about, there's a, kind of a, a scripture, you know, talking about the beam and the moat, right? Like get the beam out of your eye before you try to get the moat out of mine, right? Mm. So like mm -hmm. take care of yourself. That mm -hmm. kind of transformed into sweeping around your own front porch before you sweep around someone else's, mm -hmm. right? Like just kind of handle your business internally before right. you go external. And so, yes, um, the design of the position is to do internal and external work. Yeah. Um, but it's also important that for me, from an internal standpoint, that I create the infrastructure. Right. So if I go out to the community and when I go out to the community and, and things are shared about ways in which we could better our processes, if I don't have a pathway back into the, mm -hmm. the organization to mm -hmm. kind of make those things happen, right. then I just get a list from the community that I can't um, operationalize, I can't, I can't take right. action on. And right. so um, we're fortunate enough to have Alicia Fernard mm -hmm. um, as a DEI program analyst, another person in this space. We also have a community relations person, Shay Stevens. Um, and so I think there's, mo there's, there's more folks kind of thinking and, um, in this DEI space with me. And, we, and let me say this. Chapel Hill was doing DEI work before me. Let's mm. let's get that real clear, right? I didn't again. I didn't walk in from ground zero, <laughs> and I want to to make sure that my my good colleagues know that mm. um, and know that I appreciate the work that they they did beforehand and continue to do alongside yeah. me. Um, but that internal infrastructure has to be there um, before I can do the external pieces, mm -hmm. right? Um, because it's going to take partnerships. Right. And so really understanding the landscape of mm -hmm. the town of Chapel Hill, um, how we're situated, how we're situated um, 
from a grant perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of the things that need to happen are certainly services that touch people. But I don't want it to be lost on folks that I would say the bulk of my job needs to be focused on how our internal structures, mm -hmm. right, this institutional oppression that happens, we need to internally look at our systems, yeah. right, to make sure that the town is not uh, collaborating with other systems to create this layer of oppression right. in the community. Yeah. And so a lot of that is is going to be internal work. But I love community. We're like back outside now. So yes. I'm getting to meet people yes. um, and hang out. It was warm yesterday. I was like, I cannot wait to have a warm summer of right. community involvement. There's going to be something tonight I'm excited about uh, mm -hmm. hearing, hearing about history at our library. So it is... Um, there's so much work to be done, mm -hmm. so much work to be done. I, mean, I feel as if, you know, some days, like, is it, is it ever going to be enough, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. I won't say imposter syndrome. I mean, maybe a little bit of that, mm -hmm. um, but it's so much work. And mm -hmm. so it's really about building the capacity of folks within the town right. to kind of help me do that work. Yeah. And so it, it can't, if it was just me, I would, you know, if I were hired to come, Shnika, you fix it. Like I wouldn't have accepted the position, right? Because <laughs> I try not to set myself up if I can help it. Yeah, right, um, right. And so it, it really is about having a cadre of folks who, mm -hmm. who know how to use tools, our racial equity assessment lens yeah. um, to kind of move this work forward. Yeah. And then listening. Um, I was talking to the, our wonderful council members last night and I said, you know, we have to lead, but we lead by listening, mm -hmm. so it's a different. It's a different leadership. It's it's yes. when you come alongside community to do this work. Right. Um, it's, it's interesting. You have to stay mm -hmm. nimble. Right. <laughs> well, we were talking about it. It'll be in this June. Uh, it'll be two years um, since you started the position, and of course, since the pandemic, time is a whole different beast. It, yes. it moves at a different pace, and it. It's not even a consistent different pace. It just moves differently all over the place. Absolutely. But in two years, a year and a half so far, mm -hmm. um, is there anything you look back on so far and say, yeah, I'm really proud of that, or um, this, is, this is what we're really trying to do? I would, it goes back to capacity. It would yeah. have to be the equity lab, mm -hmm. thinking about our, our gear structure and we need to do organizational capacity and training. We need to operationalize our racial equity tools. Um, Gare kind of talks about normalizing conversations around race and mm -hmm. organizing the work and mm -hmm. operationalizing the tools. And so I came in and, and I thought, like, how do I do this? Mm -hmm. Leaning back on the work that I did in St. Louis, working um, with teams of folks and doing training. I did professional development there. That was the role. Um, and it was like, let's kind of do something like that. Let's, let's get some academy style learning going on. Let's get a year long cohort kind of happening yeah. um, so that we can teach folks, one, the tools and give them the practices to talk about race mm -hmm. um, in a way that you typically don't, which means that I have to ask people to be vulnerable yeah. in the space. And that's that's a bit of a culture shift. People come to work to do the work. That's right. And you are vulnerable with the people um, you choose to be vulnerable with. Right. right. And that may not be everyone on your team. But when mm -hmm. we're talking about issues of race and and disparities, mm -hmm. then then you have to tap into that vulnerability to have real conversations. Mm -hmm. And so it's a space where we can we can do that. We can I can model that for folks. I yeah. can give people permission to show up as they are um, and have these conversations, but also 
teach the tool and also give folks practice. And so that to me um, was a good piece of infrastructure to kind of put in place. Also relationships, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was COVID. And so it was difficult to to be out in community. So building relationships within the town, um, I want, you know, I think there are different types of DEI officers. I've met different types of DEI officers. Mm-hmm. Um, and this work can be frustrating mm-hmm. and it can be emotionally laborious. Um, and there will be times where I have to, you know, you know, dig my heels in and mm-hmm. we can't do this. Like, you know, and to the point of exhaustion, yeah. you know. Um, but in order to do that and have people trust me, right? Because this is a trust thing. Yeah. Um, again, talking to counsel last night, it, it kind of came to me. I'm, I'm kind of like coaching folks to equity, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you have to trust your coach. Mm-hmm. And so um, another thing I think I'm proud of is, is building some relationships within the town of Chapel Hill where yeah. people will come and ask me questions mm-hmm. um, in, in a thoughtful way mm-hmm. and not be afraid or even seeing a room of people where you go in and like, okay, what is this getting ready to be? Mm. And then when you leave, they're like, she's not bad. (laughs) Like, I know I'm not bad. Right? You know, like, I did this before. This is why they hired me. I trained decently. (laughs) Um, So that has been the piece. Having people not be afraid to do this work and not be be afraid to do this work in concert with others. Right. Um, You mentioned the Equity Lab. Uh, Explain um, for those who might be listening and don't know what that is. What is the Equity Lab? What do you you hope to get out of that? Okay, so the Equity Lab is a um, bi-monthly space, Mm -hmm. about four hours a month. The first hour, um, last year we had kind of early adopters, folks that, you know, kind of knocked on my door. Hey, Shnick, glad you're here. Can't wait to talk to you about equity. Mm. It's like, oh, you might be good people to kind of serve in this equity labs kind of space. And so pull those folks in and we talk the first hour. We build community. Mm -hmm. We build community. We build, you know, psychological safety. There's no such thing as safe space. We build brave space for people to explore Mm -hmm. then their own socialization right, how they came to be who they are yeah. in the context of their social identities um, and just build that, that all that cognitive dissonance, that space in between, like I'm hearing what you're saying, but like somewhere I'm pushing back somewhere, uh-huh. right? So right. people work through all of that yeah. um, in that space. And then the second hour, we begin to look at our tools and how we can apply those tools mm. to work that we're doing. So we've had um, different departments kind of come in and bring work that they're looking at and they want to apply equity lens um, too, and we walk through that tool with them mm-hmm. and you get the collective, right? You know, again, you need that diversity mm-hmm. to be able to have different perspectives to inform that tool. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of we, we kind of keep that going. And, and there's so much to cover. Right. right. There's so much to cover. And especially in, you know, small increments, small, small sound bites. Um, this work is about an investment of money as well as time, right? Mm-hmm. Those are resources. Time mm-hmm. is a resource. You have to dedicate time to learn this work, yeah. um, time to process, to, mm-hmm. to go on your own journey. Right. Um, and so that the Equity Lab provides that um, uh, kind of like the macronutrient of, you know, you kind of find those fruits that have, oh, it has all these things that you mm-hmm. need. Um, it was building a space that has many components that we would need to kind of make this work happen. So we started our second cohort today. Yes, that is great. Super excited. That's great. I I so look forward to hearing more about it. Uh, You know, just the 
generally how it's working and how people and especially people coming out of it and what they've learned from it how they yeah. how they can change and, and open up I think that's really great and um, it has been incredible learning more about you, you. Um, I've got two more questions for you all right um, but it, I just I, I appreciate you telling your story uh, to everybody thanks for asking um, absolutely um, hearing everything that you've experienced that mm -hmm. you have been willing to say yes to mm -hmm. Is there anything that scares you? Because from where I'm sitting, there's a lot of things that you've done that I wouldn't do. <laughs> and I'm impressed. Thank you. <laughs> um, what, what scares me is not fulfilling the purpose that I was sent here to do. Mm. Um, you know, again, old Baptist girl, and so to whom much is given, much is required. Mm. And the given piece for me, I was a child who grew up, you know, all the risk factors that you can kind of think of. Mm -hmm. um, if you kind of go back through my work history, what I did was chase down my own mm. personal, you know, familial traumas yeah. and an experience. Yeah. And so from substance abuse to mental health, right, mm. um, to abuse and neglect. Like, so all of those things are really close to yeah. me. They're in my in inner ring, yeah. if not experienced personally. And so it was a process of me learning mm. to make those situations better mm -hmm. for other people. Mm -hmm. um, so I would be afraid to not use even the experiences that were hurtful mm -hmm. and traumatic not to make this world a better place. Mm. So, yes, that is what that's what scares me um, yeah. to waste. I mean, to waste all that trauma. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. Wow. Yeah. That, that's incredible. So um, then to wrap us up, um, it's the end of the day. Mm -hmm. You've you've put your phone down. Mm -hmm. you've, you're trying to unwind. Mm -hmm. What is it? What is it you 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 go to? How do you <laughs> unplug, unwind and, and put the day to bed? I was born in 79 in Queens. I am a rap music girl, okay? <laughs> so it is rap. I listen to um, various rap artists like mm -hmm. Wu-Tang. Um, it is the, the similes and the metaphors. It's the cleverness mm -hmm. of um, the lyrics. And some of them are, you know, certainly un clean and misogynistic and so I'll kind of like you know I'm still working through some of that as a DEI officer that, yes. but um but so much and so many of those folks have experienced different levels of trauma and so it's I love to hear the creativity mm -hmm. um and the resilience in in the music yeah. um and again some of it is just like way too much but um I do enjoy the the, the music the mm -hmm. I like to move, um, mm -hmm. and I have a good tribe of people, right? Like, my tribe is, they're great, right? Yeah. So, you know, being able to, to call my friends um, and just chat about various things that are happening in their lives. Yeah. Um, I'm a foodie, mm. so I enjoy a good meal. Talking my language now, here we I go. I enjoy a good meal. <laughs> um, and being, trying to be reflective, mm -hmm. um, so, that's the unwind. But typically when my head hits the pillow, it's, it's out, That's lights right. out. That, that means you have done well for the day. You, you have spent everything you've got and it's time to recharge. Yes. 
Well, thank you for all you do. Thank um, you. I, I, it has been a pleasure to get to know you and, and you. especially more today during this conversation Likewise. too. And I look forward to, uh, to building on that relationship as we go Let's throughout our work. Let's do it. Thank you, Rand. Thanks so much. Town Talk, the podcast is a production of Town of Chapel Hill Communications and Public Affairs. The hosts are Rand Northam, Christina Strauch, and Alex Carrasquillo. This week's song from the Tracks Music Library is Shiver by Stray Local. Visit us online at townofchapelhill.org.